This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm John Dickerson. This week on Face the Nation, as the fall presidential campaign season kicks off, the country faces unprecedented challenges. And the candidates work to convince, distract, and excite voters. So I'm putting myself on the line, but I know what's going to happen. The numbers are going to be great. President Trump ended the week promising better days, claiming the economy is on the mend, and once again, the coronavirus is losing steam. We're rounding the corner. We're rounding the corner on the virus. Joe Biden countered with a dose of reality. You can't have an economic comeback when almost 1,000 Americans die each day from COVID. Both men traveled to Kenosha, Wisconsin, where a police officer shot Jacob Blake seven times in the back, spurring racial protests and violence that have devastated the city and left two dead. Three issues set to define the race for president and the next presidency. We'll get the latest on them all from our guests this week, former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb and economist Mohammed El Arian. We'll also be joined by 60 and 6 correspondent Wesley Lowry, who just returned from Kenosha. It was a totally fake story. President Trump battled a fourth crisis this week after the Atlantic magazine reported he denigrated American troops who died in war, calling them suckers and losers. Many of the allegations were confirmed by other media organizations, including Fox News. We'll take a look at how all of this affects the political landscape and where the presidential race stands with our CBS News Battleground Tracker. Anybody that is really a successful leader, I think, has failed in life. Plus, as America holds a job interview for the next president, our conversation with investor and philanthropist David Rubenstein on what it takes to be a great leader. It's all ahead on Face the Nation. And welcome to Face the Nation. Margaret is off. On this Labor Day weekend, public health officials are warning Americans to follow social distancing guidelines, especially for those celebrating the holiday with groups of people. This comes as coronavirus cases continue to rise in the Midwest, and there's concern of a new surge as the weather gets colder. We begin this morning with CBS News national correspondent Mark Strassman in Atlanta. America wants a holiday from COVID. But a lot's riding on this Labor Day weekend. South Dakota's state fair opened, despite a startling positivity rate, 22%. New cases keep rising in 27 states, more than triple the number two weeks ago. The Midwest has become America's new regional hotspot. Like this Florida crowd on Friday night, 
Labor Day weekend could unmask complacency toward the virus. Some governors are worried sick. Picnics, um, backyard barbecues, uh, gatherings. And we know that much of the spread that's occurring in Illinois is actually happening in these settings. America's COVID caseload, nearly 40,000 more every day, has nearly doubled since Memorial Day. Please be very mindful of the fact that our last surge started on Memorial Day weekend when people let their guard down. Without a vaccine in sight, America's economic recovery sputters. The national unemployment rate finally dipped below 10 percent. But 29 million people now collect some form of unemployment. 3.4 million jobs have vanished. Eric Beltran last worked in mid-March. Ever since, the unemployed brewer has been hammered by rejection. 150 job applications. No luck. It almost feels like a suffocating amount of gravity, just slowly pushing harder and harder on you. Finally, school starts on Tuesday in 30 states. Almost all learning will be virtual in cities like Chicago, Houston, Baltimore and Detroit. New York City schools delayed their start until September 21st. America's largest school system will offer partial in-person learning to 1.1 million students. This is uncharted territory for everyone. Richard Carranza, chancellor of New York City schools, says nimbleness is key. One super spreader could undo months of planning. What are you going to do then? You hit that red line then we go all remote uh, until we're able to suppress it back down. Carranza has been studying lessons learned by other school systems like Georgia's, which opened more than a month ago. COVID outbreaks for some schools is shut down and returned to all virtual teaching. But first, like school officials everywhere, he's hoping Labor Day weekend won't compound the challenge of keeping people healthy. John. Mark Strassman, thank you. The total number of COVID-19 cases worldwide stands at 26.9 million. And the World Health Organization now says it does not expect there to be widespread vaccinations until the middle of 2021. CBS News senior foreign correspondent Elizabeth Palmer reports from London. At the moment, about 300,000 new cases of COVID are being confirmed every day in this world, transformed by masks, social distancing, and, of course, some protests. Human rights matter! In Australia, several hundred young, mostly male protesters tussled with police over the local lockdown and curfew. But the government didn't budge. It is not safe. It is not smart. It is not lawful. In fact, it is absolutely selfish. Melbourne hit by a second wave of COVID will remain in lockdown until the end of the month. After a busy vacation season, parts of Europe, too, are facing a second wave. Good morning. With schools back in session and universities about to follow. But fewer people are dying and the medical system is coping well. Even in France, where infections have climbed sharply, the famous Tour de France bike race is going ahead, though every cyclist is tested every day. It's the developing world that's still struggling with runaway infection rates as well as testing and treatment. India tested a million people in 24 hours and found 90,000 new cases, more than twice the U.S. rate. Clearly, a vaccine can't come soon enough, though Russia claims its version is already here. The defense minister showed up for a jab photo op, but skeptics pointed out that while most vaccines will be safety tested on tens of thousands of people, Russia has tested this one on a grand total of 76. Here in the UK, there is growing confidence that COVID can be controlled until there is a vaccine. And the proof? Fully half of employees are no longer working from home, but have returned to the job physically. And the government, John, is urging many more to join them. Elizabeth Palmer in London. Thank you. We now turn to former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's in Westport, Connecticut. Good morning, Scott. I want to jump right in. Give us an update on where things stand now here on Labor Day. 
Well, if you look at where we are heading into Labor Day relative to where we were heading into Memorial Day, we have an equivalent amount, if not more, infection heading into Labor Day right now. And we're heading into a more difficult season. We're heading into the fall and the winter when we would expect a respiratory pathogen like a coronavirus to start spreading more aggressively than it would in the summertime. Looking at Memorial Day, um, we had about 40,000 people hospitalized. We were diagnosing about 21,000 new cases a day and had about 1,100 deaths. Now, notwithstanding the fact that we've made really significant gains in reducing in-hospital mortality and reducing length of stay in the hospitals for patients who are hospitalized for COVID right now, as of yesterday, we had about 35,000 people hospitalized. We're diagnosing about 40,000 infections a day. Uh, And on a seven-day moving average, we have about 850 tragic deaths a day. So that's a lot of infection to be taking into a season when we know a respiratory pathogen is going to want to spread more aggressively. And the other backdrop here is that people are exhausted. Um, People have been social distancing and wearing masks and staying home for a long period of time right now. Small businesses are hurting. So I think that um, people's willingness to comply with the simple things that we know can reduce spread is going to start to fray as we head into the fall and the winter. And that's another challenge, trying to keep up our vigilance at a time when we know that this can spread more aggressively. So, Dr. Gottlieb, just to remind us all why the fall and winter are considered worse than the summer, why is it that we wanted to be in a better position going into the fall than, say, some other season? Epidemiology of spread uh, for a respiratory pathogen changes in the wintertime, in the fall and the winter. Typically in the summer, you see viruses spread that are spread through food, um, things that are um, ingested. In the wintertime, you see respiratory pathogens spread more aggressively, in part because people are indoors more. Um, They're in congregate settings where respiratory pathogens can spread more efficiently, in part because there is some impact of the cold weather on your ability to protect your upper airway from respiratory pathogens, but we know that the epidemiology of spread changes, and that's when you see these respiratory pathogens like coronavirus or respiratory syncytial virus um, or uh, flu. That's when you see these pathogens start to spread. Typically, a coronavirus isn't a summer pathogen. Um, It's a seasonal pathogen that really manifests itself in the fall, the winter. And there's a lot of circulating strains of coronavirus that cause nothing more than the common cold, and typically they only circulate in the fall and the wintertime. I want to uh, pick up on that point you made about people just being fatigued and tired. You Listening to public health officials trying to sound the alarm yet again about Labor Day, you, you really felt for them. So I want to ask you about vaccines in this context, which is we are hearing more about vaccines. Uh, certainly the administration is talking about it. Is, is there a way in which talk about vaccines, which is a little bit of a ways away, obscures what needs to be done today to stay on top of this? I think when, I think in terms of thinking about the vaccine, at least as far as this year's concerned, 2020, the fall and the winter, I think that if there is a vaccine made available, it's likely to be a very staged introduction of the vaccine under an emergency use authorization where there's going to be a lot of data collection around the use of that vaccine. And it's just going to be for very select groups of people who are either at very high risk of contracting a coronavirus because of what they do, for example, healthcare workers, or very high risk of a bad outcome. Think of people, for example, in a nursing home. So you can almost think of the vaccine being used in a therapeutic sense to try to protect very high-risk populations, and not in the way we traditionally think about a vaccine in terms of trying to provide broad-based immunity in a population and really quell an epidemic. I think the likelihood that we're going to have a vaccine for widespread use in 2020 is extremely low. I think we need to think of that as largely a 2021 event. And if we do have a vaccine available in 2020, it's likely to be used in a much more targeted fashion, almost in a therapeutic sense, to protect very high-risk populations. Um, You know, the reality is that if we continue to see spread at the rate that we're seeing it now or something higher than what we're seeing it now, by the end of the year, upwards of 20 percent of the population in the U.S. could have been exposed to this coronavirus, and we're likely to see the virus itself start to slow down just because of the natural progression of the epidemic and the fact that we're heading out of the winter into into the spring and the summertime as we enter 2021. And so this could run its course in 2020. And as we get into 2021, start to slow down. I think the tragic consequence of that is that there's going to be a lot of death and disease along the way. But I think by the end of this year, Um, we're likely to be through at least the most acute phase of this epidemic, in part because it's going to end up infecting a lot more people between now and then. 
So it sounds like what you're saying is that all of the things everybody's heard of a hundred times about masks and social distancing and not gathering in large groups, everybody has to stay vigilant because a vaccine isn't coming racing to the rescue. If a vaccine does get this emergency use authorization, people are worried about politics. The CDC this week told states to be ready by the 1st of November. Help people understand how much politics could get in the way of, of speeding up the vaccine distribution. Well, I don't think politics should get in the way at all, um, and I don't think it will. There is a very rigorous process around the development uh, and approval of a vaccine, and I'm on the board of Pfizer, which is one of the companies uh, developing a vaccine, which is pretty far along. First, there's a data safety monitoring board overseeing that trial, and the, and the data doesn't get unmasked to the drug developer and to the FDA until the data safety monitoring board is comfortable with the conduct of the trial in terms of letting it continue then the company needs to file that data with the uh, agency and ask for permission either for an authorization or approval. And then you have a very rigorous process inside the FDA. And I led that institution and worked there in three different iterations during both the Bush administration and the Trump administration. And I have absolute confidence in the scientific staff that's going to review this application. It's a very rigorous process. There's multiple layers of review among people who are, who are expert in these areas. And so I don't think those people are going to be pushed around to make a decision that they're not absolutely confident in. Um, in terms of the distribution of the vaccine, the government has said that they're going to take over the distribution of the vaccine. Uh, I think, in, at least initially, the distribution is likely to be very limited because if there is a sort of authorization or an approval of the vaccine sometime this fall or winter, again, it's likely to be a very targeted populations of people where it will be relatively easy to distribute to sites where those individuals can get access to the vaccine. So, for example, if you think of... Um, distributing the vaccine to nursing homes. Well, we know where the nursing homes are. Um, we know who's there. The federal government and the state governments oversee those institutions and regulate them. So that should be a relatively straightforward exercise. Same with trying to vaccinate um, doctors, frontline healthcare workers. In 2009, we, fr we vaccinated frontline healthcare workers first, and we were able to do that very efficiently with the swine flu. All right, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, as always, we really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. And we'll be right back with a look at the economy from Allianz Chief Economic Advisor, Mohamed El Arian. Stay with us. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. We go now to Mohamed El Arian, Chief Economic Advisor for the financial services company Allianz. He joins us from his home in Laguna Beach, California. Good morning. Good morning. So let's start with the unemployment rate. On Friday, we learned in August it dropped to 8.4 percent. Mohammed, what's your sense of where the economy sits right now? So if you look just at the numbers we got on Friday, you would be optimistic. We, we got a really sharp reduction in the unemployment rate. We created 1.4 million new jobs. More people came into labor force. But if you pull back, John, things get a little bit less good. Why? One is the rate of improvement is declining. And two is that we're trying to come out of a very deep hole. As you pointed out at the beginning of the show, we have almost 30 million people who depend on unemployment benefits. So it's a half full, half empty picture. And that's a problem because of the stalemate on Capitol Hill. So unfortunately, these numbers simply tell you we are still having a long road ahead. I want to get to the stalemate on Capitol Hill in a moment, but the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell in an interview with NPR said that, or suggested anyway, that the future job gains were in industries and sectors of the economy that might be harder to revive because with COVID still around, those industries, uh, are they require people to participate in them and people just aren't ready yet. How do you read that of what's left out there to be gained on the economy? He's absolutely right. Um, there's this notion of counterparty risk, or what you and I would call trust. In order for us to engage in economic activity, 
I have to trust that you're healthy. You have to trust that I'm healthy. And until we have a clear way of doing that, people are going to pull back. So we're not going to see the quick recovery in all sectors. And that comes at a time of increasing inequality, not just of income and wealth, but of opportunity. So as I said earlier, it's a long road ahead. The good news is we have the policies to accelerate it. The bad news is, is that the political system doesn't enable that. I want to get uh, stay on that moment, that notion of counterparty risk for a moment. It, there has been this bit clumsy debate about, quote unquote, opening the economy or doing what's necessary to mitigate the, the pandemic. What I hear you saying is as long as people are making risk assessments about their own health, they're not going to engage in the kind of economic activity that gets America back to where it was economically before this hit. That's absolutely right. We have to understand there's a difference between ability to work, reopen the economy, and willingness to work, willing to go in and engage in the economy. And until you improve both ability and willingness, we're not going to get back to where we were. So no, these are not alternatives. We've got to do both. We've got to reopen in a healthy fashion. Let's talk about Capitol Hill. If, uh, if you could uh, make policy by magic, what would be the most useful uh, policy that might help the economy in its current position? I would embark on a four-pronged strategy. One is relief, and we've heard a lot about it, just helping people who are suffering for no reason of their own. Two is living better with COVID, what we just talked about. Three is capturing what are long-term pressures on growth. We are seeing much more industrial concentration. We're seeing much more deglobalization. And finally, reducing household economic insecurity. People have suffered. They've dug into their savings. They're not going to be as willing to, to spend in the future unless you give them more of a safety net. We can do this, John. It's a matter of political implementation. So there's the political implementation, and then there are the new numbers we got this week on uh, the deficit um, record-setting numbers, $3.3 trillion, uh, the Congressional Budget Office said, in 2020, which is three, more than three times the shortfall in 2019. How much should we keep the debt and deficit in our thinking in terms of these short-term measures and their cost? We should keep it in our thinking with an important qualification. The reason why we care about debt and deficits is because of what's called sustainability. It's like you in, at home. How much you spend depends on how, on how much you earn. How much debt you get into depends on your future earning potential. What's critical is to make sure that the deficits promote long-term economic growth. If they do that, and they can, if they do that, we won't have to worry over the deficits. If they don't, then we're going to have both a growth problem and a debt problem. And uh, sometimes people talk about the relationship between debt and, and, the, and the cost of money or interest rates. The Federal Reserve signaled that it doesn't look like rates are going up anytime soon. What, help people understand where the Federal Reserve is coming from these days. So basically, the Federal Reserve is to the metal. They will do whatever they can in order to sustain the economic recovery. But they are only an enabler. They can't deliver outcomes. So what they're trying to do is buy time for other policymakers to step in and actually improve economic growth. So look for them to maintain interest rates really low, almost at zero. Look for them to buy more securities and look for them to continuously assure us that they're there covering our back. Help us understand why the stock market is booming, even though uh, the economy is in the difficult position it's in. Because of the Federal Reserve. You know, the basic question you ask yourself if you're a professional investor is who else is buying this market? And if you believe that the Federal Reserve, with a, with a, with a printing press in the basement, <laughs> And it's not a commercially oriented entity. It's not price sensitive. If you believe that they're going to continue to support you, you buy ahead of them. But John, I keep on stressing, there's a limit to how much you can disconnect financial markets from the underlying economy. And we have disconnected them a great deal this year. Final question in our last 40 seconds, Mohamed. Think in the long term, in 2021, 2022, what kinds of long-term economic questions should we be thinking about as we think of this presidential election, as we try to think of how to climb out of this for the future? 
It's one, John, can we grow in an inclusive and sustainable matter? If we don't, we're going to have economic, social, and financial issues. It's about inclusive growth. All right, Mohamed El Aryan, thank you so much for being with us, helping us sort through all of this. And we'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. With just eight weeks until Election Day, former Vice President Joe Biden has maintained his 10-point lead over President Trump, according to our latest nationwide CBS News battleground tracker. That translates into a lead in our electoral college model as well. It shows former Vice President Joe Biden with 279 electoral votes leaning in his direction and 163 leaning in President Trump's direction. 96 are toss-ups. A candidate needs 270 electoral votes to win the presidency. Our polling unit also talked this week specifically to voters in the key swing state of Wisconsin, where protests exploded after the police shooting of Jacob Blake. There, Vice President Biden is up six points over President Trump. We'll have more from our latest CBS News Battleground Tracker in our next half hour. And we'll be right back with 60 and 6 correspondent Wesley Lowry, who is just back from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Plus, more from our CBS News Battleground Tracker with CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto. An analysis from the campaign trail from political correspondent Ed O'Keefe. And later, David Rubenstein's new book, How to Lead. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Overnight, there were tense confrontations between demonstrators and police in Rochester, New York, and in Portland, Oregon. They're the latest in a series of protests, some of which have turned violent this summer since the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Joining us now is Wesley Lowry, correspondent for 60 and 6. Wesley just returned from Kenosha, Wisconsin, where he was covering the shooting of Jacob Blake. Wes, it's good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So we have heard a lot about Kenosha. It's in the middle of this presidential campaign. You were there. What's happening there? What's the scene? Certainly. You know, so uh, I, I just got back earlier this week from Kenosha and spent some time on the ground there. And, and look, it's, it's not unlike a lot of the other cities in the last few years and certainly the last few months where we've seen unrest on the ground, right? Uh, initially, there is kind of an organic um, anger that turned sometimes into violence. We saw this in Kenosha, some buildings burnt down. Uh, then you have a rush of people who come in. Um, and in this case, that was both folks who wanted to commit violence as well as these kind of vigilante groups. We had this shooting um, involved Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, but then once the dust settles, what you're left with are the locals, the people who live there, the people who are uh, still there even after some of us get on the plane and go back home. And so what we see in Kenosha is some Ongoing energy, ongoing protest, frustrations. You know, Kenosha is one of a series of, of cities and towns in kind of southeast Wisconsin between Chicago and Milwaukee. Old factory towns used to be auto manufacturers, places that in a lot of ways, um, you know, industry left behind. And so you do see, even though this is a primarily white stretch of the country, uh, minority populations there that are impoverished, that feel like they're dealing with uh, discrepancies. And so there is some tension and racial tension beneath the surface there in Kenosha. And so even as some of the cameras leave and our attention turns to the next story, this energy from the protest and this fallout from Jacob Blake's shooting, I think is going to remain um, kind of at the fore, at least in Kenosha locally. 
and compare it for us, Wes, if you would, to what you saw in Minneapolis after George Floyd, which is to say, does that energy you describe manifest itself in reform, in new laws, in pushing for that, or um, is it different? Well, it's different in part because in Minneapolis, uh, you were seeing George Floyd was in many ways uh, the latest in what had been a series of cases. That area had dealt with many high-profile uh, cases of police use of force, from Philando Castile to Justine Damon, um, year after year after year. While in Kenosha, this is the first major incident, not that folks on the ground don't have their own anecdotes and stories. And so I note that because, one, you see in Kenosha a kind of protest and organizing that's more in its infancy versus Minneapolis, where it was very mature and developed. But second, uh, you know, in Minneapolis, uh, the demonstrators, the organizers, this energy had had time to influence the local politics. There were members members of the council locally who had themselves been demonstrators and protest. Uh, you had kind of progressive politicians up and down. Could the politics of Kenosha and the politics of Wisconsin are a little bit different. And so what we see is that this is kind of the beginning of a process in a Kenosha, Wisconsin, while in Minneapolis, George Floyd was actually much later in the process as it comes to the influence and the organization of these types of folks. I want to ask you, Wes, about some of your great reporting that's in your 60 and 6 piece, which is you talked to the person who, who took the footage of Jacob Blake. What did, what did you hear in that conversation? Of course, yeah, Rayshawn White. He was the first person I wanted to talk to when I got to the ground, having covered a lot of these police cases in the past. I'm always interested in the people who are thrust into the story. You know, Rashawn White's this 22-year-old. He lives across the street. He hears a commotion outside, and look, we're all nosy neighbors. He sticks his head out the window, ends up capturing uh, this video that changes the city he lives in and, in, one might argue, changes the nation. And, you know, when we talked, this was maybe two weeks after the shooting, and, and he was still really grappling with the implications of what had happened. He was obsessively following the coverage from the protest to the to looting to the shooting now by Kyle Rittenhouse of these protesters. And he was having trouble uh, not succumbing to an anxiety that it was all his fault. Should he have taken this video? Should he have shared it? If he had it, would any of this stuff happened? And so I was really uh, fortunate. I really appreciated the time he spent kind of talking through the collateral consequence of doing uh, the right thing, seeing something happening, turning his phone on, sharing it with the world. So now we can all decide what we think of that incident for ourselves. But that this doesn't end for him. He's still sitting there with the stress, with an anxiety and wondering, you know, did he do the right thing? All right, Wesley Lowry, thank you so much for your reporting on the ground and for being with us. And we'll be right back in a moment. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. As we told you earlier, former Vice President Biden has kept his national lead over President Trump, maintaining a 10-point advantage through both parties' conventions. Biden holds a lead also in a number of battleground states, including a six-point lead in Wisconsin. For the state of the race, we turn to CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto. He's in Westchester County, New York. Anthony, good morning. Good morning, John. How are you? I'm well. It's always good to see you. Let's start with my favorite question at the beginning of every one of these surveys, which is what is the story of this race right now? Um, it is very much about the president. Voters tell us that they are evaluating this race based on what they have seen over the last four years, even more so than what they think might happen in the next four, and even more than what they think Joe Biden might do if elected. Now, maybe that's not unusual for an incumbent president, but we also tested that directly, and that evaluation on the president, for good or for bad, is the thing that really stands out. It is also, John, very much about intensity. We have seen, especially since the conventions, voters locked in. We're approaching 9 in 10 who say their mind is made up. 
Good luck finding swing voters this year. We've done tens of thousands of interviews. I can assure you they are rare. But that intensity is why you will hear over the next weeks both campaigns talking about motivation, talking about turnout, because it really is about that intensity, John. But it's important, that point about referendum, because the president in his convention tried to turn this race into a choice. And when you're a president with a low approval rating, a referendum is not good for you. Indeed. In fact, even half of Joe Biden's voters say that this is for them about the president. And so, yes, that despite the fact that the campaign has tried to shift this to make it about what Joe Biden will do and being more prospective in that approach so far, not moving that needle, John. Is COVID-19 still weighing the president down? It is. Um, It's done a couple of things. One is we talk about how you evaluate the president. Well, his argument, which we've tested, is does he get credit for stemming what could have been a worse set of fatalities, a worse outbreak? And on balance, voters are telling us, no, they think the administration could have done more. They think that things could have been better had there been more planning. And the other political outcome of that, John, is that that sentiment has put in play a number of states across the country, particularly the states where the outbreak has hit hard, particularly many in the Sun Belt. That has moved those states into toss-up or lean categories as well. So it's really had the effect of expanding the map, too, John. Anthony, we've seen the president try to shift what this conversation is about in this election. He wants it to be not about COVID-19, but about violence in the cities. What do your numbers tell you about that strategy? Okay, so we asked about the protest and each candidate, how they're speaking to it, how they're handling it. Biden comes out better on that measure. And particularly, we asked if each candidate seemed to be trying to calm the situation or maybe encourage even more tension. Well, the president on balance is seen as encouraging more tension, more fighting. Joe Biden's seen by more as trying to calm the situation. So that nets out towards Joe Biden, or at least not moving the needle in any negative way uh, with regard to Biden. The other point on this, John, is the argument the president seems to be making is that voters might be worried if political violence extends, even how it extends into the suburbs. Well, we talk to people in the suburbs and they tell us they're not concerned that there might be violence in their neighborhood. So that doesn't seem to be resonating. You know, I think at a broader point, a lot of folks compare this era in this respect maybe to what we saw in the late 60s and early 70s as far as protests are concerned. You should state for context, the country is different than it was then. The electorate is more diverse today. The suburbs have more diversity today. And racial attitudes have shifted. We've seen that certainly in the polling over the last few months. So that could be one reason why that attempt hasn't found a lot of resonance. All right, Anthony, thanks, as always, for giving us the rundown there. And we're now going to turn to the man who has been out on the campaign trail, seeing all of this with his eyes, CBS News political correspondent Ed O'Keefe. Ed, I want to start with, we're going to get to some of those numbers Anthony talked about, but I want to start with this piece in The Atlantic by Jeffrey Goldberg, uh, which which, uh, recounts a number of instances in which the president had disparaging things to say about about those who had fought in the military and died. There have been a lot of explosive things that have happened in this presidency. Do you think this matters at all in the campaign, or is it just another flashpoint? It's certainly a flashpoint where I think the Biden campaign believes there could be potential political advantage for them is with rank-and-file members of the military, their families, and military veterans. And it's all part of the broader appeal to pick off disaffected Republicans or independents who might have voted for President Trump before don't want to this year, but still need reason to vote for Joe Biden. And so I think what we saw when this was released, and again, you know, these are remarks that the president and his team strongly dispute. uh, And and we've seen more people on the president's side at least put their names to those disputes than, of course, people who confirmed it for Jeffrey Goldberg, uh, is that this isn't now just about John McCain or about military leaders that the president would have met with to discuss military policy. It's about you, they're arguing. It's about you and your military family and the sacrifice that you or your brother 
uh, or your husband made while serving in the military. Biden himself was quite struck by this, invoking the memory of his son, Beau, who served, uh, saying, you know, how could you consider his service or how could you consider him a sucker? How could you consider those that died in battle a loser and that the president should apologize? So it's probably more in that regard, they believe effective than to the general understanding that, yes, this is a president who has said things in the past about his rivals, about the military. Uh, that isn't necessarily a surprise to people at this point. That's right. It's a commander in chief uh, saying uh, anything disparaging about people who gave their lives in their country's services is obviously a, a flashpoint. It also seems, uh, Ed, that it, it is if the end of this race, or do you see it this way, that it's about turf. What's the debate? About, is it on Joe Biden's turf that the debate is taking place, or is it on turf that President Trump would like? It seems at the very least this is not turf that President Trump wants to be talking about. Not at all. And, and, and that was part of why I think we saw the Biden campaign seize on this report so quickly, is that it, was allow, it allowed them to try to steer the conversation away from law and order and away from the economy, where he remains vulnerable uh, when compared to the president, and raise, again, questions about his judgment and his character as they try to keep this uh, focused on a referendum on the incumbent, which, as you said, would benefit him for sure. And as you mentioned, law and order, the president went to Kenosha, Wisconsin, where there have been protests and violence. Joe Biden responded with a speech this week, seeming to buy into the idea that he might have some vulnerability or exposure on this question of, of violence and law and order. Is that right? Do the Biden, does the Biden campaign see a vulnerability on that issue? If they didn't, then why was he spending so much time this week making clear that he believes that looters and violent protesters are people who should be held accountable for their actions. I think they saw that last weekend, especially when the president was really hammering them on that as a potential weak spot, but they addressed it quickly. And they also pivoted it, again, in that, in that sense of referendum. The violence is happening now. How is it that the president can manage it if it's happening now? Don't talk about how it might be handled in the future. And look, Biden went to Wisconsin, uh, held a listening session, actually got to meet with the Blake family when the Trump campaign and the White House apparently struggled to make contact with them. Ed, you've reported that the, that the Biden campaign feels some pressure to get the vice president out there. Um, what is that? Why do they feel that pressure? And what does it look like to campaign in this age of social distancing and mask wearing and, and all the rest of it? Yeah, well, and it's interesting because at the beginning of this pandemic, Americans widely told us they didn't care if they didn't see these guys campaigning in person. In essence, they understood that it wasn't possible. That's shifted. About four in 10 Democrats in our poll say they've got concerns about Biden not being out there. And about half of independents also say they'd like to see him out more. So in the coming days, you'll see Biden go to Pennsylvania twice and to Michigan. Uh, he's talked about going to North Carolina. We'll probably see them at some point go to Arizona, which is a state they're obsessed about somehow trying to win. And again, it's quick day trips, much like the president. Biden admitted this week he has been tested for COVID. He will be on a regular basis. And his campaign has vowed to let us know if for some reason at some point something shows up in those tests that would cause concern. So, uh, you know, they're taking precautions, but they now do suddenly feel much more willing and able to get out there. And we expect them to make trips maybe two or three a week. Uh, for the duration of the campaign. And he'll be carrying those uh, briefing books with him for his debate as well, the next other big stage at the end of this, this month. Ed, thanks so much. For more on our CBS News Battleground tracker, log on to cbsnews.com slash polls. We'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We sat down with philanthropist and author David Rubenstein last week to talk about his latest project, How to Lead, wisdom from the world's greatest CEOs, founders, and game changers. It's a collection of conversations about the qualities it takes to be successful, which we might keep in mind when we're picking our next leader. David, you've been a leader. You've interviewed leaders. The country is in the middle of interviewing leaders right now for the presidency. If you were holding a job interview, knowing what you know about leadership, what would you look for in candidates? 
Uh, I'm looking for their ability to focus, their ability to communicate well, their ability to have some sense of priority of what's most important to them, their ability to um, inspire people, their ability to rise to the occasion. And I also think humility is important. Anybody that is really a successful leader, I think, has failed in life, and you have to persist after your failures. But failure gives you some humility. How do you test for humility when you're interviewing somebody and all they're doing, trying to do is tell you how great they are? Well, I often look at their sense of humor. I often ask questions that are designed to elicit a little bit of a, uh, laughter. And uh, if they don't play along, I realize that maybe they don't have a sense of humor. Maybe they have no humility. How important is that? If you're a leader, you have to have some human interaction ability uh, with the people you're trying to lead. The ability to lead really gets down the ability to persuade. There are three ways you persuade people. Orally, you can write well, uh, or you lead by example. George Washington and Valley Forge in 1777, he could have stayed at the Four Seasons down the corner, but he didn't. He stayed with his troops. He led by example. You want people that actually want to lead for the right reason. Do you want to lead somebody because you want to be famous, you want to be rich, or do you want to lead somebody because you're trying to do something really important? And I've observed in my book, in my interviews, the people that really achieve the greatest things, they're not worried about the material things. They're worried about getting to some end, proving their point. Bill Gates wanted to prove that software was important. Jeff Bezos wanted to prove that he could sell things over the Internet. Uh, Warren Buffett wanted to prove you could be in Omaha and, and be a good investor, whatever it might be. So the material things meaning accumulation of wealth, having a yacht, having a big uh, building, is that what you mean? What you should want to do is to help other people. The greatest satisfaction, the happiest people I've seen are people that helped other people. People that are, they could be teachers or they could be people that have given away lots of money or have invented things that have really helped other people, discovered uh, medical uh, devices that are wonderful or, or cures for diseases. Those are the people that are happy. The people that aren't happy are the people that don't really know why they are on the face of the earth. You should realize in the end you're on the face of the earth for a relatively short period of time, and the greatest happiness comes about when you achieve things for other people, not for yourself. If, if knowing why you're on the face of the earth is your driving, uh, organizing principle, is that what drives you every day? You get up in the morning. How do you work that into a kind of a daily plan if you're a leader? I think people that learn how to be leaders learn how to do this during the course of their life. And when they reach the point where they really are good leaders, they have reached the point where they know what they really want to do with themselves. My observation is that while there are people like Bill Clinton, who was a Rhodes Scholar, became President of the United States, as a general rule, the people that are running the world were not the superstars in the first third of life. They may have burned out. They may re realize that being a superstar in the first third wasn't what it was cracked up to be. So the people that are running the world today in the second and third third of their lives are not people that were observed at the age of 15 or 20 to be the superstars. And so there's hope for all of us who didn't succeed in the early part that you can rise up and, and do something major, maybe significant with your life later on. I have a lot of personal experience with failure, but teach me to fail. <laughs> Well, the truth is, with fail, you have to observe what you did wrong and why it uh, didn't work out. And if you say, you know what, this isn't good, I'm not really talented, I'm going to just go back and sit in my office or sit in my house and not do anything, then you won't be a leader. But if you say, I learned something from this, I know how to overcome this, I can do this better in the future. You said humility comes from having failed and learning to overcome them. So in that sense, it's kind of a byproduct. How does humility help if you're, if you're a leader uh, prospectively? Well, if you're trying to become a leader, um, I think you have to get other people to follow you. In other words, you can't say, I'm going to be a leader, and nobody follows you. You have to have people follow you. How do you get people to follow you? Well, you have to give them certain sense that you have a way of going somewhere, that you're going to take them on a vision and on a voyage that's going to be useful for them as well as for you. And to do that, I think you have to be simpatico with them. You have to say, look, this is good for both of us. It's not just good for me because I'll be more famous. You have to say, we're going to do this together. And that's how you really make people follow you. Relentlessness. How important is that? I think it's, in, it's in, indispensable. So relentlessness, another word that's often used that way, is resilience. You have to be resilient. And you have to take um, this, uh, the punching you're going to get in life and, and come back. Do you all, when we were growing up, we all had these like the little punching bags. You punch it and it comes right back at you. 
but that's what you have to do. People are going to punch you all the time. You have to come back, and it's like when you're a little kid. You know, people are, who are bullies, well, they, they'll punch you, and you have to come back to them. And in the end, um, you know, in the, the, in the adult bullying kind of thing, it's the same kind of thing. People will say, he's a terrible person, he's, he's incompetent, he's not smart, he's a terrible idea. Well, if you take this personally and you go home and call your mother and say, look, people think I'm terrible, you're not probably going to be a great leader. What you have to do is be resilient about it and come back. And remember, nobody can be liked 100% by everybody. There's always going to be people that don't like you. And so if you can't stand the heat, as they say, you've got to get out of the kitchen. How is presidential leadership different than in other sectors? There are three ways you can persuade people, and a president can, but other people can as well. You learn how to write well. So let's suppose you are a very good writer, and you're Thomas Jefferson, and you wrote the Declaration of Independence. That can persuade people. Or you're a very good orator. You're John Kennedy, and you give the inaugural address in 1961. But leading by example is the most effective way to do it, I think. And I think many presidents who have been successful have led by example, and I think Abraham Lincoln is a good example. He showed people his humility, that he was going to bring his team of rivals in with him, that he um, didn't brag about what he was doing, and that he recognized he had lots of failings. He was the kind of person who, you know, led by example. When people were in his presence, they would, they would realize they were in the presence of a great man. Is it important for presidents to take responsibility as an as fulfilling that example function that you talked about? Well, as a general rule of thumb, I think it's a good idea for anybody to take responsibility because if you say, in any case, well, it wasn't my fault, or I didn't do anything to deserve that uh, uh, bad thing happening, you know, again, people hear you and they say, well, you know, who was responsible? You were in charge. And I don't mean, mean a president of the United States, but any position. Mm -hmm. You should take responsibility and say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. People will admire you more if you say you take responsibility. David Rubenstein, the book is How to Lead. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Margaret Brennan will be back next week for Face the Nation. I'm John Dickerson. Today's guests were former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, Allianz Chief Economic Advisor Mohammed El Arian, and Wesley Lowry, correspondent for 60 in 6. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Diva Darce. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did 
what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.